You are listening to a podcast from Vineyard Church of Augusta. For more information, visit vineyardaugusta.org. Yeah, if we haven't met, my name is Roger. Um, I'm the associate pastor here at Vineyard Augusta, and, and one of several hats that I wear here is that I oversee worship. So if you see me up here on the team sometimes, that's sort of why. Um, so I'm especially excited this morning to be preaching, and, and for two reasons. First, um, because I get to continue our sermon series called Big Ideas on Worship, um, and it's because also beginning today, as, as was already announced, we're doing the service in reverse order. And so um, I'm, I love doing this. We did this at our church when Angela and I were pastoring together in North Carolina. Uh, we did this for several years in a row where our service was ordered this way. Um, and let me just especially encourage you that, that part of the reason for this is, is instead of worship feeling like it's the warm-up for the sermon or something, like the main event, right? It's more like... I get to come in and preach, and for the next couple of weeks, our preachers just get to come in and preach, and then we get out of the way, and worship is then our response to God, right? It's, it's our response to whatever you hear in your heart, in your spirit, whatever it is that the Lord does in you in these next 30 minutes or so, let your worship flow out of that, right? And we do, we, on, on regular weeks, um, if you've been around here, we have our response time at the end, right? And there's opportunity for a little more worship and prayer ministry, but it's, it's still kind of quick. This lets us really, like take our time with that. So I'm excited. Um, Let me begin today by telling you a little story. And this story is about how I met Jesus. All right. Um, Oh, Amber alerts. God, would you protect this child? Whoever it is, would you help them to be found and to be safe? In the name of Jesus, intervene. Amen. I got woke up with one of those in the middle of the night last night. And like, man, what do you do but pray and then like not fall back asleep right away because that's frightening. Um, Yeah, so story about how I met Jesus, right? So uh, grew up in Southern California, uh, great Christian parents. My dad was up here playing percussion today. There we go. Um, And uh, by all accounts, right, had a great family that loved Jesus. Uh, By all accounts, went to a fabulous church that, like, really preached the gospel and read the scriptures and did all these wonderful things. But until I was about 14, I never seriously thought about it. I never seriously considered um, what, what it meant that Jesus, like, came to earth and was born as a baby and did his ministry and died and rose again and all. I never really considered it. I'd memorized all the Bible verses because I could get extra tokens at the arcade, right, with, with kids' church stuff. Um, but it never really went into my heart. So then, if you fast forward, when I was like 14, um, my, my, my parents decided that we were going to move. And we were going to move from Southern California. And I'd never moved houses, right? I don't know if, if any of you have ever, like, put down roots for that long. I'd never moved houses, right? Had the same neighborhood, same neighborhood friends, all this my whole life. We lived in San Diego, like, 15 minutes from the border, 15 minutes from the beach or something like that. It was just, it was glorious. And, um, but we were moving from San Diego to uh, Conyers, Georgia. Yeah, you guys can already see where this is going. It's not good. And so, fine place, fine place. Um, but, but, if you do this to a 14-year-old, right, you guys were all like tweens before. You remember what this was like. It's a difficult time of life to have any kind of change because there's already so many other changes. So I was really, really angry, right? I was really angry um, at, at, at my parents, at God, at everybody. And, and I remember one day like, like kind of yelling at my mom 
Like, why are you doing this to me? Why are you taking away everything I've ever known and my, the, my only house I've ever known and my friends and the beach and the zoo and like all these things that I love about San Diego? Why are you doing this? And I remember her just with tears in her eyes, all she could do is look at me and say, because God wants us to. And that was probably the first time I ever cussed at my mom. And I was like, BS, I don't believe it. You told me my whole life that God loves me. Why, if he loved me so much, why would he do this to me? And at that point in my heart, I was like, I'm out. I don't believe this anymore. So we moved to Georgia. Um, they were afraid I was going to like run away in the airport or something. I didn't. We made it to Georgia. Um, I only went to church like a handful of times maybe with them. I was not interested in going to church. Well, then I ended up getting suckered into going to a youth camp. Anybody ever get suckered into going to a youth camp? I still don't know what I was thinking. Um, I just knew like these kids who I know didn't like me because I was angry and I called them all rednecks. And I was, I was not good at making friends at this season of life, um, but they got me to go. And, and even as we're driving up there, I'm like, oh my gosh, what am I doing? Like, this is going to be the worst week of my life. Like, I don't want God. I don't want these people. I don't like any of this. And we go through the first day and there's like games and stuff. And I'm like, this is fine. Well, then the second night, there is like a worship night. Now, when I say worship night, Okay, you got to realize this is before there was like a worship industry, okay? This is 1992. So there, there was not like some big worship machine and industry going on, right? Um, there, there was like no Maverick City concerts at, at like the big amphitheaters in Atlanta or anything. This was just not a thing. And so the worship night, what it was, was this one middle-aged dude, like my age now, middle-aged dude with a beard before beards were cool, right? Back in 92, like beards were not cool. This was the sign that you were absolutely not cool. Uh, standing up there on stage just with his acoustic guitar and like no band, no band. And there's like 200 kids. And I was like, lame. I've been to church. I've seen churches with bands. This is lame, right? Um, and so there I was in the very back of this room, again, just like, ugh, why am I here? This is the dumbest. And guys, all I can tell you is in the middle of this room with these like 200-something high schoolers all just like singing songs of love to Jesus, all of a sudden, I, I, the presence of God fell on me. I, I, I would not have had language for that. I would not have been able to tell you that I sensed the presence of God. Something just overcame me uncontrollably. And, and suddenly, you know how now you see cartoons and there's like the light bulb moment like goes on over their head? It was literally like that. I literally felt like this like went on, and everything that I knew in my head suddenly just fell like a ton of bricks into my heart. And this was my salvation prayer, I swear. This was my salvation prayer. I, I think even just out loud, unbidden, I just said, oh my God, it's real. And that was it. And here I am, right? And the reason I bring this up, here's the big idea I wanna to unpack to you guys today that I think my own salvation story just bears witness to is that worship is a physical and communal practice that transforms us from the outside in. Worship is a physical and communal practice that transforms us from the outside in. Now, most of our language about worship is very internal, which is not wrong, right? Like Jesus said, you know, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kinds of worshipers the Father seeks, right? God is spirit, and so his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. That's very internal kind of language, and that's, that's really true. What, what is going on inside of us 
really does matter. And, and I'm going to move on from this quickly because I'm just going to sort of like assume, which this isn't always true, but I'm just going to sort of assume that, that most of us, when we come to worship, we're trying to do that, right? We're, we're trying to mean the songs we sing and, and that sort of stuff. So I'm taking that for granted as being the like environment of worship that we're entering into. But of course, what happens is what Pastor Reese talked about last week. If you missed that sermon on the podcast, I encourage you to go catch up on it there. Um, that we worship God from the inside out, but then as we encounter God's presence, like he talked about last week, right? Um, we, that we are formed by our worship from the outside in. So here's, here's the text I want to jump off from this morning. Romans 12, verses 1 through 2. Um, Paul's writing this to the church in Rome. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as the living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Why don't you pray with me? God, we thank you that you have invited us to be your people and that part of that invitation is to worship you. And not just to worship you from afar, but to bring our whole selves into your actual presence and that in that space, we, we are drawn nearer to you and we therefore become more like you, that, that you then uh, affect us by your spirit and your presence and your love, and your goodness. And that's just what we want today, Lord. So we just ask you again, even as we prepare in these moments to head into worship, that you would answer the cry of our hearts, that you would draw near to us as well. And so I pray you would speak to us through your scriptures today, God. I pray that you would um, expand our imaginations, that you would throw wide the doors of our hearts, that wherever we have barriers, God, that we would trust you enough to, to actively lower those and we would let you in. Let us hear your voice, Holy Spirit. God, I pray that your voice would speak much more loudly than my own today. Amen. Uh, so, so this phrase in Romans 12 that I really want to like hone in on here is this bit when he says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, that this is what worship is really about, that this is the kind of worship that God is like, okay, I will accept it, right? That's good. This is what I want, you know, bring that in and I'll deal with it. Now, uh, these, these verses are often used to teach on the importance of a life of holiness, which uh, is not untrue, right? That's not a misapplication. But what I want to draw out here is this idea that we are invited to bring our whole selves, body and soul, into worship. And I don't know if you've thought about this today. I don't know, even as we sang one song of worship, I, I wonder, like, were you thinking about, this is an invitation, and I'm accepting this invitation to bring my whole self, body and soul into worship. There's a slide for that. Go. It's coming. It's coming. There it is, right? So yes, when Jesus says worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth, on the inside, this is true. But we also brought our whole physical bodies into this. Um, you know, in contrast to Jewish worship, if you think about in the Old Testament, right, the way that they would worship, uh, which Jewish worship involved, at least in part, bringing an animal, right, that would end up dead 
and after which the worshiper would leave empty-handed, Christian worship involves bringing in our own bodies, which will still be living when we leave. But it's still this physical body that is brought in. And, and for a Christian to not bring his or her own body into worship is about as nonsensical as a Hebrew not bringing his or her animal into worship, right? It would just be like, what are you doing? This isn't how it works. You need, you need the physical and the spiritual, right? You need that internal heart posture towards God, but you need something physical that you are bringing into it. And, and so this question is, well, like, okay, what do our bodies have to do with worship, right? And I'm going to speak on this for a quick moment, and then I'm going to address three kind of really specific ways I think that this interaction happens. Is, is I think it's first important to understand our bodies are our primary means of interacting with God and others in the world, Right? Our physical bodies that God gave us are our primary means of interacting with anything, with anyone, right? And we know this, right? If, if you've ever had a time where you can't see well, it's really hard to like interact with other people, right? If, if, if you're having like ear problems and you can't hear, it's difficult to actually like interact with other people. Um, uh, I read this fascinating book. I did a series of retreats led by Michelle Bauer um, last year. read this fascinating book um, called Honoring the Body. It's by a lady named Stephanie Paulsell. And she says that we Christians, we've, we've inherited an ambiguous legacy about the body, right? We sometimes quite don't know what to do with it. Um, Christianity's long struggle with an uneasiness about the body, she says, even as it affirms the goodness of the body and its bedrock beliefs. Uh, but she goes on to say this, and I think this is just as clear as I could say it, and we'll move on. She writes this, in the Hebrew Bible, the human person is never described as made up of separable parts like body and soul. Rather, the whole human person is both body and soul. Being human means being both strong and fragile, full of both life and death. According to the Hebrew scriptures, we are our bodies just as we are our souls. One is not better than the other. Both are irreplaceable parts of the human person. And if they are irreplaceable parts of the human person, then this is why this is our acceptable form of worship, right? That we bring our whole selves So in worship, this is what happens. In worship, as we bring our bodies in, God uses them. God, God's spirit ministers to us even through our physical bodies and affects and transforms us as we worship. And so I want to toss out to you three ways that I think this happens. And these are mostly from, from my experiences, but we'll, we'll pull some scripture into this too in case you're, you're curious about that. And the first is this, is that worship affects our eyes and ears. When we are gathered together like this, in a communal setting, worship affects our eyes and ears and that in worship, we point one another towards God. This is actively happening in the room. Uh, worship, guys, is not intended to be a private practice. And we get a lot of this language these days. One of the gifts of the vineyard, I think, into the worship culture of the world as a whole, this really stemmed from the early days of the vineyard, is that we value intimacy with God, Right? We, we value this place where we come and we worship and we have this sense of really having an intimate connection with him. But what happens is that if we lean too heavy into that, this time of worship that we're about to have just becomes about me and Jesus, right? To the exclusion of what's actually happening in the room with the body of Christ. And I think it's important. 
Worship is not intended to be a private practice. It's not a secret that we keep to ourselves. Worship is communal, engaged in with our bodies in the presence of other people. Now, I'm all about private worship. I've done this for years and years and years myself, just alone with my guitar in my room, and that is great. That's not what I'm preaching on this morning. What I'm talking about this morning is what we are doing, right? And there's a, this is a common theme throughout the Psalms. If you read the Psalms, which was kind of like the Hebrew songbook, right? These were the songs that they would sing. Here's two of them real quick. Psalm 22. Um, it's a Psalm of David. This is an important Psalm. Reese actually quoted from this Psalm last week, if you, if you caught that in the sermon. Uh, it's important because this is also the Psalm that Jesus began to quote while hanging on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? He was intending the whole rest of this Psalm to like kind of come into people's minds as he said this. So I just say, there's a lot going on there. Meditate on that this week in the light of worship and the sacrifice of Jesus. I think it's amazing. Um, But here's some other bits from Psalm 22. I will declare your name to my people in the assembly. I will praise you, right? You see how instantly this is communal. This is us together, right? I will declare your name to whom? Not to myself, to my people, and, and where? where? Where does this declaration of God's praises happen, his name? Not in private, but in the assembly. Now, assembly, this is a Hebrew word called kahal, and it just means literally assembly or like congregation. If, if you went and read the Septuagint, the Septuagint's the uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament, right? The Greek translation. The Greek word they would use is ekklesia in this verse. Anybody know that word ekklesia? Even if you don't know a lot of Greek, you've heard that word. It means church. Right? So I will declare your name to my people in church. I will praise you. Right? With all of them. Verse 23, you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. Note how David's direct address is to his fellow worshipers in this room. Hey, come on, guys. Let's worship God together. Verse 24, for he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise. Where? In church. In the great assembly. This is where it happens. Psalm 40 says the same thing. I proclaim your saving acts in the great assembly. In church, I do not seal my lips. As you know. I do not hide your righteousness in my heart. I speak of your faithfulness and your saving help. I do not conceal your love and your faithfulness from the great assembly. Again, more worship in the context of church. But notice in particular how Psalm 40 seems to like actively push against the idea of worship as a private activity between me and Jesus, right? Where I get in this place where I just forget about everybody else. He's pushing against that. He says, I do not seal my lips, in the great assembly. I do not hide your righteousness in my heart. I do not conceal your love and faithfulness. No, instead, he says, I speak of your faithfulness and your saving help. Why? Because God's faithfulness and saving help are worthy of saying out loud for other people to hear. Others need to hear about it. Others need to actively hear with their physical ears the praises of God coming out of your mouths not keeping it secret. Worship is a public practice. And I realize this might push against some of, some of our inclinations. And if this rubs you a little bit, if you feel a little bit of friction, then I think you're probably the person that needs to hear this. Your worship is meant to be seen and heard by other people. Like, 
when you're just there in your chair on a Sunday morning, your worship is meant to be seen like other people should be able to look across the room and see you. People sitting around you, whether you have a great voice or not, I don't care. They, they need to hear God's praises coming out of your mouth. Why? So that it can direct their attention to God. Your worship is meant to be seen and heard by others, and you are meant to see and hear others as they worship so that it directs your attention to God. Because our ultimate attention is not on one another, right? Our ultimate attention is on God. But in worship, we see and hear through and past one another so that we can see and hear God himself. This is how this works. Have you ever come to worship and just felt like, I really don't want to be here? Let's be super brave for a moment. How many of you guys, have you ever come to church and you're like, I really don't want to like sing songs of worship today? Right? Good. The rest of you are lying. Um, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> Judgy Roger. No, like, let me say this. That's precisely the moment to come. You come and you just like, in honesty, Right? This is also the part of, I think, worshiping in spirit and in truth. That means we come authentically. We're not faking anything. But in that moment, we then need to see and hear other people worshiping. Guys, some Sundays, there are people that come in here that they are at their wit's end. Their life is falling apart. They, don't, they might not even know much about worship. They may know about worship and want to have nothing to do with it, but they need to see and hear you nearby them worshiping. This is why performance or some like rock star approach to is so antithetical to Christian worship. It's why YouTube really gets under my skin. They all look so beautiful. They're all so auto-tuned. The camera angles are, are like so sexy, you know? It's just like, oh man, worship is like the coolest thing to ever happen, you know? This is, this, is, this is why one of the reasons why I actually prefer worshiping with the lights on. I know some people don't love that. If you prefer worshiping in the dark, I would challenge you to ask yourself why. It's not supposed to be a secret. It's meant to be seen because God is worthy of it and because other people need to see and hear you. Your worship is supposed to be in, in spirit, but it's not meant to be a secret. And back to my story, this is quite simply what happened to me in 1992, Right? I absolutely didn't want to be there, but what happened was I saw and I heard other people worship, and my attention was directed towards God. I saw and, through, saw and heard past them and through them, and I saw and heard God himself, and I was instantly transformed. That's the power of it. So that's the first bit, right? The worship affects our eyes and ears because in worship, we point one another towards God. The second is that worship affects our brains, Right? Our brains, our physical, actual brains are important to God, and worship affects them. Now, if you think about this, I used to be a teacher, right? And anybody, if you've ever been in education, you know the power of music to teach things, right? The power of teaching things in song, right? Like, how many of you guys, did anybody learn your alphabet without learning the song? <laughs> a, B, C, D, E. Oleg did. Did you have a different alphabet? Is that, that's, probably, that's probably why, right? Yeah, <laughs> different alphabet. You know, but this is the power of it, right? 
When I was a Spanish teacher, right, like we would use silly songs to like help teach things because music has a way of just getting into our brains, right? Um, Listen to what Paul writes. This is in Colossians, and he's talking about public worship, communal worship like this. He says, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another. He's talking about teaching, right? Here's how we get truths into one another, right? Here's how we admonish one another, saying, hey, hold on, keep going, be faithful, love other people the way that God loves them, right? Whatever, however we need to admonish people, here's the means of doing that. With all wisdom, through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Here's one thing I know to be true, guys, and I'm a preacher at heart. Like, I love preaching way more than I love leading worship, right? But that's not because I think it's more important, because none of you will ever remember this sermon today. You will not remember quotes from this. You won't be at some desperate time of life, and you're like, I remember one day Roger preached this sermon. What you will remember is the songs that we sang, right? That's, this is where we get our theology, this is, the songs are where we actually get our impressions of God that wedge themselves deep, deep, deep in our souls. You know, last week, I've, I've had this like nagging thought all week long, which is a good sign that the sermon was good, I think, that I had this question, right? If you remember last week, uh, uh, Reese preached on Paul and Silas in prison, right? They were imprisoned, and, and what did they do in prison? They were singing. They were worshiping. And so there's actually a series of two questions that are related that have been rattling around in my brain all week long. The first is this. What songs were Paul and Silas singing? I want to know so bad, right? What songs were they singing? Even if you're thinking about the, the verse we just read, right? Were, were they psalms? Maybe, maybe they're singing some of the psalms of David. Maybe they actually sang Psalm 22 in prison. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a jam, you know? Maybe they were singing Psalm 40. Maybe they were singing some other psalm. Maybe they were just singing like hymns that were contemporary written. Maybe they were singing songs in the spirit that were just spontaneously coming out of them in that moment. I don't, I don't know. I want to know so bad. Now, this is pure speculation. I think the answer is D, all of the above, right? Because what else you got to do in prison, right? You just kind of, you cycle through them all, you know? You sing an old psalm, you sing a hymn that some local church person wrote, and then you're just making up something, then you're back to a psalm, right? That's just what happens. So that's the first question. What songs were Paul and Silas singing? They weren't reciting sermons. They were singing songs. And then second, where did they learn these songs? Where did they learn these songs? You know where I'm pretty sure they learned them? In church. They learned them when they gathered together with their local collection of believers and worshiped. I guess sub under that would be another question. Who were the worship leaders that led these songs that taught them to Paul and Silas? We get no indication that Paul was a songwriter. We don't know much about Silas. Maybe Silas was a songwriter, right? Somebody in their local church wrote and led songs that buried themselves deep in their souls to when they were in the darkness of prison, they just bubbled out of them. I think think that those songwriters and those worship leaders are the hidden heroes of that story. I think they're the hidden heroes of that story. Just this week, 
I, I heard a story from one of our, our, our church members, and they have a family member who is young, about 24, I think, who is about to be serving in prison, sentenced for like eight years, was in a really, really tragic scenario a few years ago. And this person was sharing this with me and was saying, will you pray for him and pray that he is safe and pray that he meets Jesus? And we stopped even then and we prayed and we prayed for him. And then all throughout the week, you know what I've been wondering? Does he know any songs? I don't know that he knows any songs. He's not like Paul and Silas. He's not in prison with songs about the love and goodness of God burned into his soul. But so when I think about things like this, it, uh, this is some of the stuff I take very seriously as a pastor. And, and so here's just, and this might be a little bit of like behind the scenes, like nerdery, like maybe you don't care how the sausage is made, but this is just a little bit how this works, right? So we have a repertoire, Right? In, in the songs that we sing, we have a 40-song repertoire, and this is kind of how it works. Like, we, we don't just do our favorite songs, right? We, the worship leaders don't just get to do whatever songs they happen to fancy or whatever. It's not the songs we love. We aim to be more prayerful and intentional and servant-hearted than that. Um, we value what I would call like having a healthy, balanced song diet, Right? And so we ask questions like, do we have a balance of like upbeat celebratory songs and slower, more intimate songs? And do we have songs that point us toward the inner work of the spirit as well as the outer work of our mission in the world? Do we have songs that comfort us as well as songs that challenge us, right? Do, do we have language for how God strengthens us as well as language that helps us cry out to God in the midst of our honest brokenness, right? Like all these kinds of things. And we regularly take a big picture of our repertoire and how that's going. And almost on a monthly basis, we're rolling in new songs that we're kind of like auditioning and seeing how they go. And this is why we want you to have a healthy song diet that will nourish you on your spiritual journey. Now, the second aspect of building this, once we kind of build this repertoire, is repetition. Because another thing that any good educator knows is that the way people learn is by repetition. So can, can I be really honest with you for a moment? Every now and then, Every now and then, I have somebody come up to me, and they, and usually very nicely, right? Like, you guys aren't jerks. But you'll come up, and you'll say something, someone will say something like, gosh, Roger, like, why do we always sing that song? I am so sick of that song. Like, gosh, we always sing that song. And, and what I say out loud is, oh, man, thank you. Like, thanks for that feedback. Like, I totally, I totally hear you, you know? And in my mind, I'm going, yes. Because if you're sick of it, that means you might actually know it. We have sung Let Your Kingdom Come so many times in this church. I know it. Long before I got here. And my hope and prayer is that when you are in your own dark prison, that that song will just bubble out of you unbidden and it will save you. So I really don't care if you're sick of the song. Yeah. Now, that said, sometimes I agree, and, you know, as we, as we rotate in a new song, that means we rotate out another song, and quite honestly, sometimes it's the ones that are just sort of overplayed. So I, 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 do, I do hear it in that sense as well, and sometimes that's really great reason to just not sing it anymore. You learned it. Good. Let's, let's pull it out for a while. We want you to know these songs by heart so that they spontaneously come out of you in the dark. So the third thing that worship affects us as we wrap this up is that worship affects our heart, 
right? It affects our eyes and ears. It affects our brain. And worship affects our hearts. And I actually literally mean this physical heart. So I'll explain this in a second. Worship unites us together with other worshipers. It unites us together with other worshipers. Um, uh, a number of years ago, I think this was around like 2013 or something like that, uh, there was a study published in a university in Sweden that studied the heart rates of members of a choir. And what they did is, is they had some suspicions and they had their scientific hypotheses or whatever, and so then they were gonna test it. They brought in this choir. I don't even think it was a church choir, right? It's just like, you know, community choral group or whatever. They bring them in. They, they line them up on their, you know, platforms and they're gonna sing their songs. And, and they hook all of them up to like heart things. Technical people, what is this? I didn't hear, I didn't hear that. Monitors, heart monitors. Everybody shouts technical things at me at once. That's just medical speak. I don't know it. So they hook them all up to heart monitors, right, that are feeding into computers that are keeping all the data, right? And they sing their songs and they're collecting the data and whatever. And they looked back at it later on. And you know what they noticed? Is that first, and perhaps not surprisingly in this one, is that they saw the individual's heart rates lowered as they sang. Now, and part of this is natural. Part of this is because when you're singing, you're, you're breathing more strongly, right? You're, you're breathing more, and, and you, you need to breathe, right? And so if you're stressed out, you know, you can do breath exercises, or you can sing a song, which is just naturally going to do that. So their heart rates lowered. It had this calming effect, um, which is great. But second, and this was a surprising thing, is the scientists saw that quite quickly, within a matter of moments, after beginning to sing in unison, all of the choir members' pulses were synchronized. All of their heartbeats synced up at the same time. Isn't that wild? Guys, God has baked into the DNA of our physical bodies to be such that when we sing in unison songs of praise to him, we are unified. Not in some esoteric you know, like existential kind of way in the spirit. We're one in the spirit. Yeah, that's true. It's baked into our bodies. And let me just say this. I, I understand that you're not gonna love every song that we sing here, right? <clears throat> Truth be told, I don't love every song we sing here. I still lead them for you though. Because you need to learn them. They're still good. Sometimes we come in, we don't feel like singing, we don't like a certain song, we don't like the way the particular leader is doing that certain song, we, whatever, right? We make up all our excuses to have all our opinions about worship and why we, we're not gonna sing. Well, let me just tell you, in those moments when you're not singing, again, maybe it's coming in through your ears and you need to not sing so that you just let it hit your ears and the stuff we just talked about, right? But when you're not actively singing, your heartbeat is doing its own thing. And you're missing out on something. You're missing out on something. You know, the, there's that phrase, like the family that prays together stays together. You know, I, I think even more true than that is that the family that sings together stays together. The church family that sings together stays together, body and spirit. Let me close just by telling you guys a story. So let me show you a picture. This, this is not a remarkable photo, but it's a photo of a remarkable moment. It's a photo of a remarkable experience. 
Um, I shared about this a couple months ago. This is a group called The Gathering in the Holy Spirit that Angela and I are invited to back in 2018. It was the first time we went in Rome. And we just went again a couple of weeks ago. And what this is a picture of at this moment is us worshiping with charismatic Catholics and like what we would call like new charismatic churches. So folks from like vineyard vein of things and that sort of thing. So already it was like um, Catholic, non-Catholics worshiping together in a room. Um, there was a little over 50 people. There was like 53 people, 57 people. Not a huge thing, not a huge thing. Um, but from about 14 different countries, from Austria and Germany and Switzerland and Poland and Slovakia and Sweden and the Czech Republic and Ukraine and Italy, the UK, Canada, Brazil, the US. They even let a couple Californians in. And, uh, and nearly a dozen languages, Right? We were all worshiping in English, you know. But it, it's hands down, like, the most diverse, like, like star, starkly diverse group, right? I don't know if you can see over on the left, there's actually, like, a Franciscan monk over there. You see him in his little, he's got his robes. Arturo, there he is. Thanks. Get the little arrow. You point at him. Like, it was such a diverse group. Like, if you just hung around us and listened to us all, you're like, why are you people hanging out together? because we share the same spirit. And guys, there was these just remarkable moments of worship where, again, there was no band, there was no fanfare, right? There was not an LED wall and haze machines or anything like that. There was no auto-tune or backing tracks. It was just one German guy and his keyboard, right? Now, Henning is a fabulous worship leader, so it was really, really great. And he does have a beard, but beards are cooler now. Um, <laughs> but we would worship and guys, just the power in that room was like, it, it's difficult for me to describe. And to me, it was like about the closest moments that I feel like I've ever gotten to what heaven is gonna feel like. There was one particular moment in, in the middle of worship, because again, we were all good charismatics, right? So there's like tons of singing in tongues and things like this and unexpected moments were happening. And, and one moment in particular, one of the leaders stood up and said, hey, like, let's just pause here in this quiet moment. And I just want everyone to declare in their own language and just shout out, Jesus is Lord. And so suddenly in like a dozen different languages, one after another, Jesus is Lord. Cristo es el Señor. Those are the only two I know. And on and on. This is what worship does. It's this physical and communal practice that transforms us from the outside in through our eyes and our ears, through our brains, through our hearts. And all this, this is why I just want to encourage you guys to come to worship when you don't feel like it, to engage in the songs that you aren't necessarily feeling, there's something about choosing to physically be in the room to receive those gifts that we can't get any other way. Why don't you guys stand up with me?